Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Kerry Bowie, founder, president, and executive director at Browning the Green Space. Browning the Green Space is a voluntary coalition of leaders and organizations, primarily in the New England region, that share the passion to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion in clean energy. The organization's goal is to increase the participation and leadership of people in underrepresented groups, including people of color and women, in the clean energy space and beyond. I was excited for this one because when there's talk about climate change, often it's about emissions, carbon accounting, greenhouse gases, pollution, etc. But a lot of it is in the aggregate, and the reality is that people in underserved communities tend to bear the brunt of the bad things that come along with climate change. But when it comes to stuff like capitalizing on the revolution and all the capital and resources that are going into facilitating the transition, they tend to get left behind. And that was the motivation of Kerry of starting Brown in the Green Space. And it's really interesting because he comes more from a workforce development bent Yet he's really operating at the intersection of workforce development and climate. We cover a lot in this episode, including the origin story of the organization. And we go deep into the Wayback Machine to Kerry's background and his youth and upbringing and some of the motivations for why he does what he does. And we also talk about tactics. How do we systemically make changes? How do we increase equality and justice? What are some things that have worked and haven't worked? And what is the path for the future? I really enjoyed this one. And I'm so excited to introduce you to Kerry Bowie. Welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. 
Happy to have you. And as we were just reminiscing before we started recording, you and I met at a dinner. Gosh, it was probably like 2010 or 11 when, yeah, I was doing different stuff. You were doing different stuff. So different context, but your name has come up from like six different angles. Everyone's like, you got to talk to Carrie at Brown in the Green Space. You got to talk to Carrie at Brown in the Green Space. And so finally I convinced you to come on the show. Thank you. And nice to be reconnected. Good to see you. Well, as I explained to you before we kicked off, typically we start with an overview. I know that since you've got you know kind of a portfolio of a bunch of different things you're involved with, maybe just give a snapshot of the work you're doing today, and then we'll dive in from there. Okay. I think, Jason, when we met, I was still at the Department of Environmental Protection. I think I was associate commissioner there, so working on... Brownfield's work, you know, cleaning up contaminated properties. I was the director of environmental justice. So, you know, regardless of what race or ethnicity you are, how much money you make, what language you speak, you should have a right to clean air, clean water, sort of, you know, open spaces. And I sat on the Massachusetts Food Policy Council. And so I'd come there from a background in environmental engineering. So went to MIT and the University of Michigan. I did semiconductor manufacturing down in Dallas at Texas Instruments. And I came back up here to see about a girl. I'm married now with two daughters, 11 and 14. Sounds like it's the same girl. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So it worked out, worked out. And so I'm just north of Boston in Somerville. And when I came back, I went back to MIT and I did business school and I was a non-traditional student coming out of business school in the sense that didn't do high tech investment banking, consulting, you know, that world, you know, I actually went to work for Governor Patrick. I think it was when I was working in the Patrick administration that I met you, but I spent about a year or two in the Baker administration as well. And so to fast forward a bit, I came out of that work, you know, back then, and it might have been shortly after we, we met or a little bit, a little bit later. I left the Commonwealth uh, in 2016 and I started my own consulting practice. And so that's, uh, Masada Partners. And part of the reason I did that is, well, probably three reasons. One, in doing that environmental justice work, talking to people in the gateway cities, you know, and gateway cities in Massachusetts are, you know, pretty much akin to environmental justice communities, but, you know, they have higher minority populations. They have, you know, lower income, you know, manufacturing jobs may have, may have left, and they typically have higher English language isolation because there are, you know, larger immigrant populations there. When I would talk to those communities about greenhouse gases and climate change, they weren't climate change deniers, but it just wasn't the top of their list wasn't like top of mind or sort of the first thing they were talking about needing jobs and better education and housing and transportation and access to healthy food and the police to stop harassing them. So, you know, I was doing environmental justice work, but I was hearing about social justice and economic justice issues. And on that economic justice piece, that was right around the time that the feds color of wealth report came out back in 2015. And, you know, there's a lot of statistics in there, but the one that jumps out to me here in Boston is the average net worth of a white family in Boston is $247,500, whereas the average net worth of a black family was $8. And I was going, wow, 
This is crazy. And the last piece I will say is being a dual alum from MIT, while I was working for the state, I stayed connected to sort of more of the private sector through being a mentor for MIT's venture mentoring service. So I've probably been doing that for about 13 years now. But unfortunately, most of those people did not look like me. They mostly look like you, young. Well, you're not young anymore, but they, they, they're oh, young, 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 young yeah. white guys. <laughs> these, are, these are younger white guys and Asian students. And I just was like, hey, can I help one of those young guys, a guy, Galad, Galad Rosenweg, who now runs Design X over at MIT. He started a high-tech accelerator called Smarter in the City. And so I was on his mentor team, helped him to get that launch. But what I really learned was, you know, and, and Galad, he'll probably say it, he caught it a little bit from people in the community of like, who's this young Jewish guy from MIT starting a high-tech accelerator in Roxbury? But what I m- did was I met some, you know, black women who were like, had really good ideas, but I saw that they were struggling. They weren't getting the access to the resources and support that the young white guys at MIT were getting. And so I said, you know, I led with my heart and said, I'm going to help. I'm going to do it. But what I didn't realize is early stage startups and small businesses don't have the funding and wherewithal to keep me, you know, having a six figure salary. And so I had a bit of a a hobby for a couple of years as I figured it out, you know, almost like a, you know, a startup. I was searching and figured out that, hey, you know, it's best to, you know, work with nonprofits and with academic institutions and others so I could get paid that way. So, you know, I work with the Social Innovation Forum with the executive directors of nonprofits. I am now a core instructor for the National Science Foundation's i program through MIT. But what I was really still missing was how do I support these black and brown entrepreneurs who can't pay me, you know, consulting fees. And one of my friends and classmates from MIT Sloan, and I actually went to University of Michigan for grad school. He did undergrad, a guy named Roger Primo. And Roger's Rogers does corporate strategy at IBM now. But at the time, he was a managing director and partner at the Boston Consulting Group. And, you know, we were watching a Michigan game and he said, hey, we'd love to help. Like I told him the story that I'm telling you. And by we, he met the Boston Consulting Group and we did a pilot with six companies from the Boston area. And it was like really, really cool. And we did that again the next year and the next year and the next year. That fifth year was 2020 and everything changed. One, the pandemic hit us. And because of that, this program that we were doing in person in Boston, we went virtual. And when we went virtual, we weren't restricted to Boston. And so we were like, we can go anywhere. And then right on the heels of that was George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Walter Wallace, Dante Wright. And there was just, you know, what I say is there was a lot of white guilt, you know, literally and figuratively in a sense. And people were leaning in more. And so our program really just expanded. And so if I think about this next year, we're going to be in 36. We're going to have 36 companies in our cohort versus six. We're going to be in 15 BCG offices, and we're going to probably have close to 400, you know, BCG volunteers working. So really excited about that. But, you know, getting to Brown and Green Space, you know, that program is industry agnostic. You know, so we work with 87 companies over the last six years, but I I bet a couple of dozen of them, about 
definitely more than 20 of them have been in the clean energy food water space because of my background. I'm definitely going to know those companies and be interested in them. And so I think I just working with them more over the last few years, recognizing that there is just a still a gap and tremendous opportunity. And in working with all those companies, recognizing that consulting, connections, technical systems, all of that is great. But what these companies really need is access to capital. And so we didn't have our own capital at the time, but I was just trying to get to know angels and VCs of color all across the country. And this is really the story of how BGS started. I think I met this guy, Ed Jean-Louis. He runs a VC firm out in LA called Tail Ventures with a partner. But Ed is from Somerville. He actually is from the you know, housing projects like right underneath where my, my daughters go to school now. They go to the Healy School near sort of Winter Hill, you know, sort of Whitey Bulger sort of territory. But he grew up there, went to UMass Boston. I think he went to UCLA for business school. But I met him. I think we were both trying to catch up with Carmichael in Boston one day, Carmichael Roberts from Material Impact and Breakthrough Energy Ventures. But we, we, you know, caught up and stayed connected. And he reached out to me back in the summer of 2019 and said, hey, we are trying to, you know, we got a carve out in this company, you know, out of Somerville, Josh Aviv, Spark Charge. He said, hey, you got $25,000 you want to invest? I was like, no, I do not. I'm running a couple of, you know, I'm running a nonprofit and my, you know, small consulting practice. But guess what? I know people who probably would. And so I reached out to my network and I, you know, with two requests, specifically one, you know, can you help, you know, in this round, in this sort of seed round for Josh's company and help my friend Ed out at the same time? And secondly, I want to talk about browning a green space because I really, it was pulling together all these things that I saw that, you know, our communities tend to get more than our fair share of the environmental bats, the pollution, the asthma, the brownfields. But I was seeing that we're missing out on the environmental goods. And one of my other friends, another breakthrough energy venture guy, uh, Dave Danielson, I remember when he was at first ARPA-E and then the Department of Energy, I would go down to those ARPA-E sessions. And I remember this will date it because Governor Schwarzenegger was like a keynote. He spoke. So this was way back then. I know we were in a room of like a thousand people and, you know, using the eyeball test or the windshield test, you know, I could count six black and brown people. So, you know, I couldn't even fill up both of my hands with the people. And, and I was like, this is not about tree hugging and being like, you know, it, it, this is about making money and about economic development. And I'm going, we're not there. And so this was sort of the request I, I had. And when I reached out, I got some of the guys from the Northeast Clean Energy Council. So, you know, Dan Goldman, you know, who's at Clean Energy Ventures, Mitch Tyson, Peter Rothstein, Jeremy McDermott. They reached out first and said, hey, we'd love to talk and had a great conversation with them. And we were aligned. But I was like, it can't be, you know, four old white guys. No disrespect to Jeremy. He's not as old as, as them. He's sort of your age, Jason, and me. And so you just I always want things to be as diverse as possible. So we reached out to some of my friends at the New England Women in energy and environment. So I think about a, you know, Carter Wall, a Jackie Ashmore. And then I reached out to folk over at the American Association of Blacks and Energy, a friend Amanda Downey, 
came into the conversation. Then I reached back to sort of my MIT days, my good friend Sarah Wood Kearney from Prime Coalition, and she connected me to Maggie Cutts and Amy Dufour. And so we started to just have not just you know, individual one-off meetings, we said, let's get everybody together. And so we had a few meetings in Kendall Square and like put a couple months in between them. And our third meeting, we couldn't do in person because that's when COVID hit. And so we decided not to stop. We met virtually and we really figured out that there was a dare there, that there was a need for what we were were talking about. And that was the launch of Brown and the Green Space. So um, I think it's September 24th, 2020, we formally incorporated as a nonprofit. You know, we've been under the fiscal sponsorship of the Northeast Clean Energy Council, but I think we should have our formal 501c3 certification in the next month or so. So this has been a whirlwind two and a half, three years, but like really exciting things that are going on. And when you first had the idea for the organization, how did you think about the charter or the purpose of the organization, because I mean, you know, the name is great, and it, I think it's very—it's like well, Browning the Green Space. It's, I think it's—it's it's intuitive and obvious what it's trying to do from a big picture. But what does success look like at a more tangible level? Yeah, and maybe I can tell you a little bit about well, what do we do, <laughs> and maybe that'll help you. And so our well, wine, we're a group of cross-sector leaders you know, focus on promoting diversity, equity, inclusion, and clean energy and beyond. And our vision is a just energy transition. And if I talk about that a little bit, the energy transition is is upon us. You know, we've sort of got a green wave or tsunami that's on top of us. And I think my biggest concern was, man, are we going to leave black and brown folk out again? <laughs> like all of these resources and all of these opportunities going to come and we're just going to be left going, man, we missed it. You know, we missed the boat. And so really that was my big focus. And so those meetings that I talked about, Jason, where we were meeting, I think a lot of what we did is we had these conversations and we talked about what is needed, what are the gaps, what are the issues. And what we ended up sort of, you know, aligning on was what we call sort of these five C's. And so those five C's are careers. We need to focus on pathways to employment. How do we make sure that we are training a workforce for these green careers? And that's a whole host of things and I can unpack it. But a lot of what we're doing is an awareness and an outreach, especially with a target for like two-year universities, community colleges, certification programs. So not necessarily environmental engineers coming out of MIT like me, because all of those jobs don't need that. Like that's overkill for a lot of things. And second is companies removing barriers to employment. And one of those barriers is thinking that you need somebody with a, you know, a four year degree to do a number of these jobs. You don't necessarily need that to be a, a wind turbine technician. You know, you don't have to have that, you know, same level of, but you can also, those guys or, or gals or women can actually make as much as some of those young folk coming out of those Ivy institutions or the universities around here, especially you start doing overtime. And so that's tremendously important for moving people out of poverty or, or 
or tackling gentrification. You know, once I talk about those social issues, a lot of black and brown folk, you know, as I'm in Boston, they can't afford to stay in Boston anymore. So they're moving out to Quincy, Brockton, Randolph, and it'd be great if we can keep people in these communities. So that's what companies is about, removing those barriers to employment. So not just looking for their own people or having more qualifications on your job descriptions than is done are absolutely necessary. But wh- where are you looking? You know, where are you targeting? And also, even once you get people in, because it's sort of recruitment, retention, retainment, promotion, do you have a healthy work environment for them or is it toxic? Because if you recruit them, but then they, you've got a terrible work environment for them, that's not good. And so we, we really don't want, you know, that to happen. And so we work on that. The next place we, we look is really around capital. And so really thinking about how do we support, you know, founders of color? And we were just talking about this a little bit before we started taping or recording, showing my age, saying taping, that, what is it, 2 to 4% of VC funding goes to women? 1% goes to African-Americans? So if you happen to be an African-American woman founder, it's like 0.002%. And a lot of that is around, you know, in a sense, pattern matching in the sense of, hey, most of the VC dollars are like, you know, older white guys who are, you know, if you, if you think about where they are, you know, oftentimes they're, you know, it's easy for them to relate to a younger white guy. And so we can work on breaking that, but we can also look at how do we just get more black and Latinx and indigenous and women people into the VC space. The last two are contracts. So different than startups, Think about more established businesses, small businesses that may not be so technical, but doing energy efficiency or doing solar installs. How do we make sure that, you know, from a supplier diversity perspective, that these larger corporations, companies, municipalities, governments are bringing in, you know, folk that way to get some of those half a million or a million plus contracts? Because those correspond to them hiring more people from the communities to work in their companies. So we think that's super important. So we're doing work there to try to increase the pipeline of folk who are starting companies. Cause it's, I mean, it's, it's tough being a, a founder or an owner of a company. So how can we help with that process? How can we give some technical assistance, some consulting? How can we help with startup costs? How can we help with micro-credentialing, certifications, insurance, bonding, like all of those things? So that's that work. And last but not least is communities. In the community side, what we're trying to do is make sure that the communities that need the help get it our most vulnerable communities because unfortunately right now it feels like toys like really toys for the rich white green and vain a lot of these things are just not accessible to folk because of all of these a rebate program doesn't work or you can't do energy efficiency if you've got asbestos or knob and tube wiring or you know, mildew, or you can't put solar on your roof if your roof is in disrepair, or you can't put solar on your roof if you don't own a roof because you're not an owner, you're a renter. And so community solar and all of that stuff. So that's really how we look at it. And, you know, if I take it back to our sort of threefold mission, it is to create jobs, build wealth, and reduce energy burden. And at a high level, we sort of break things into 
corresponding to those missions, we do workforce development, business development, and community development. Well, thank you for that overview, Kerry. And when you look at the problem of climate change and you look at the problem of racial justice, social justice, wealth inequality, or problems, I I should say, how do you think about them as it relates to each other? Is it all one problem? Is each one a separate and distinct problem? Are they interreliant? I, I feel like I'm leading the witness here. I, I wish I didn't even say all those things. <laughs> wish I just hit said period after I, or question mark. How do you think about that problem? And then shut up. So let's pretend I did that. Yeah, no, no. We're, 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 uh, I already have my answer. So you did not lead me. And so, you know, I'll go back to my. MIT Sloan days, one of our professors, I actually just audited his class. He probably thinks I, I took it, but Professor Sturman, John Sturman teaches a, a system dynamics class. And, you know, I, I truly believe in, man, there's so many things are interconnected. And so part of why we did this work is to look at the intersection of environmental, social, economic justice issues. All of those things link together. Like sort of I go back to what I talked about with if we can have more contractors of color winning contracts, that's business development, but that actually supports workforce development. Most of our businesses in the country are small businesses. So if we want to employ people of color in the communities, well, if we've got more smaller businesses led by people of color, they hire folk. But then that also goes to community development. You know, if you are... You know, I was just talking to one of the guys over at Local 103, Jose Pierre, so International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, so at one of the unions, and he's of Haitian descent. And so, man, if you're trying to button up the house of someone in a Haitian community, man, if someone's a Haitian guy or, or woman comes and knocks and says, stop, I say, you know, that's a whole nother experience than if a white guy from the suburb knocks on your door. Similar in Lawrence, you know, if someone's a Spanish speaker, and I'm not saying it has to be that way, it just is natural and it makes sense. And where we've got some resistance and, and different things, if you can speak the same language, if you understand the culture, if you're local, you know, some of the stuff that I've seen, and this is more, I think, construction, we talk about, you know, if we look back a few years, man, there are cranes everywhere. It was such a boom. And, you know, even if, as I go down to the Roxbury area, and, you know, got some of the highest unemployment rates for like men 18 to 35, man, to see, you know, white guys on construction sites that may not even be Massachusetts residents that are coming in from Vermont or New Hampshire or somewhere. I'm going, whoa, this is kind of crazy. Not to say that they can't work, but when you've got like high levels of unemployment, why can't the folk who, there's a need. How can we match that need and make those connections? And so we want to do that. That's a big piece of what we're trying to do around the green space is really connect all those dots. And you also talked about how climate change, for example, and I think I heard you say on another podcast, you were talking about sea level rise and, and things like that don't mean as much maybe in some of these local communities. What means more to them is like, keeping water out of my basement or, you know, my electronics from breaking or, or saving money on my, on my heating bill or, or things like that. I've heard some people say, you know, a critique of, of the climate community is that, look, climate, like caring about an existential problem like climate change or, or worrying about it, like 
that's a privilege. Like, like most, most people don't have the luxury to care about the long term because they're so busy thinking about, you know, how they're going to put food on the table for their next meal or for their family's meal or living paycheck to paycheck and, and things like that. So how do you reconcile those things? Like, do you think the existential threat is overblown? Do you think that, you know, it's not overblown, but most people just don't have the luxury to think about it? Like, how, how concerned are you at the existential level? And then how do you take that back to the, you know, to the local paycheck to paycheck workforce development that you work so hard to do every day? Yeah, and I'm concerned all around. But for the communities that we're targeting, I think we can't be way up there. It can't be at that existential level. I think we try to bring it back to sort of the day to day. And I think it's really, you know, a lot of this comes back to just dollars and cents. And so that third leg of our mission statement is to reduce energy burden. And one thing is to also just give people an awareness of the energy burden that they're, they're saddled with. I think a lot of people don't recognize it. You know, it's versus white households, black households spend 43% more on energy. That doesn't mean absolutely they do it, but this is going back to some of those social and economic pieces where not only is there a wealth gap, there's an income disparity or an income gap. And so trying to think, I, I did a, as part of a, a challenge workshop, I'm part of a group of Sloan alums. We have an MIT Sloan Renewable Energy Finance Roundtable. So we meet from time to time and people do challenge workshops. And so I came in and this is, I think back when I was still with the state and just talked about how do we do energy efficiency or renewable work in our most underserved communities. And one of the, and I don't know if the data still holds true because this was a while back, but at the time, the population in America with the largest sort of energy burden was like Latinas. So the Latinx women in Providence, Rhode Island. And you go, okay, <laughs> why is that? But if you think about it, you can unpack it and go, one, they're typically are not going to be homeowners. They typically are going to be not salaried workers. They're probably do hourly workers living check to check. They typically, you know, we got really old housing stock in New England. That's probably not buttoned up. And we got some of the higher, higher energy costs in the country. So if you already aren't making a whole bunch of money, then you're paying higher energy costs than anyone else in the country. And you're probably blowing cool air out of your windows, out of cracks in your home in the summer. And it actually gets pretty cold in Providence like it does in Boston. You're probably blowing warm air out of your house in the wintertime. That's just not good. That's what's important. Not, and still to your point, yeah, in East Boston, is your is your house flooding? That's what's important. Or if you are in, you know, what's the heat heat island effect? You know, or as as we think about sort of black body radiation, you know, if there are no trees planted, you know, I, I can think back to when I was still back at the state. You know, I think of uh, what it was the Asian longhorn beetle infestation out in Worcester. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but, you know, it was pretty much a case study on what's the impact of, of trees on electricity bills. Because once all the, that shade disappeared, you saw an uptick in electricity bills. Well, that uptick is already there in our urban centers because <laughs> we don't have trees. And so once again, people are paying a lot more money because 
they got to do extra cooling in the summertime because they don't have tree cover. They don't have shade. And so, yeah, I could, I could go on and on, but they're just a lot of pieces where I don't think we have to be way up here in the sky. We can be like right here on the ground meeting people where, you know, we're talking about livelihoods because, you know, a, a lot of the issues overall, our societal issues here in the U.S., really come down to money. And so can we get more money into people's wallets or purses? And can we keep more of that money in their wallets and purses? That's really what we're thinking about, you know, from my perspective, you know, with an environmental justice sort of backing, but I sort of see Brown in the Green Space almost as an economic justice organization. Well, it sounds, and it correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I try to parrot back what I think I'm hearing as a way to test my understanding and also kind of bring bring the listeners along for the journey. But what I think I'm hearing is that workforce development, jobs, social and racial justice, like at the core, it sounds like that's a big motivator for you. And it sounds like on the green side, it is that it's a growth area that is also good and there's money to be made since it's an emergent area. Any disagreement so far or should I keep going? Nope, I'm in agreement. Okay. So one question I have is that people that work in climate that maybe aren't as up to speed on the social and racial justice, which they should be and, and working to get more people, including myself, you know, more in tune with these issues and thinking about them and acting about them and baking it into the things that we do and our hiring practices and our portfolio companies, hiring practices, et cetera. Like all that is great. But today, maybe they're motivated by carbon, right? And one worry they have is that we're not moving nearly fast enough. And another worry they have is that so-called dumb Silicon Valley money is flooding into the green space and that a bunch of money is going to be set on fire and that actually it's not the gold rush that you're dreaming that it will be. And so I guess one question for you is, I guess, do you feel if it's strictly about workforce development, do you feel like there's safer bets than green? So I, I am, and I know there are a lot of people who say they're not, like I'm not a capitalist, I'm not doing this. I, I am a capitalist. I believe in market forces. Part of the reason I left the state is not because I don't think the state is doing work. And I think some of the hardest working people I knew were in state government. You know, as I, as I look back on it, I go maybe using engineering or, or business terms, working in the private sector in a sense is easy. You know, you're really targeting the, the bottom line. You're trying to maximize profits and you're, you know, really you've got a, a group of shareholders that you're sort of beholden to, you know, until we got, you know, you think of like the Mindy Lubers and Ceres and others who are coming to sort of shift that a little bit. And I think we've got people being a little bit more thoughtful about the role of the corporations. But, you know, in general, that was sort of it. Whereas if you think about, you know, government, it's not a maximization problem. It's like a sort of mini max optimization thing. And so, and you got stakeholders and you got stakeholders on the left and the right and the center and behind you and everywhere. And so success in like how you state government where I was is they're not oftentimes everybody wins. It's like you're trying to make sure 
not too many people are peed off at you. And then you know you're good when everybody's like the the right level. And so it's really exciting to be sort of out in the market space to a certain extent, or even in the non-governmental space where you can think about it in a different way and sort of target and say, hey, here's where we're going to going to do. And so I think that from a creating job space, and I, I don't know if I thought about this like very deeply to go, yeah, are there other ways to, you know, create jobs? I, I can't remember, was it Milton Friedman or someone said, if you, you know, if you want, you're talking about, you know, digging ditches or doing something, if you want to create jobs, don't give people shovels, give them spoons. But I, I also believe in efficiency, and I think we want to be as efficient as possible. I think we want to get people, I think we dig dishes with shovels, or we dig dishes with backholes, you know, and, and now we get people trained to do that work. I just want to see more black and brown people in those roles. And I think right now, the green jobs, there's just so many opportunities. And you talk about decarbonization. For me, it's decarbonization is important. I believe in decarbonization, but I don't think there's a silver bullet. You know, even before we get to the decarbonization, electrification, all of that piece, man, in a lot of these vulnerable communities, we just need to, even if they're on fossil fuel, we need to button up the houses. We need to insulate the houses so they're not, you know, wasting that energy even from that. That's sort of like the low hanging fruit. But even as I'll use the decarbonization electrification space, for example, and this goes back to sort of those union jobs. Man, there's a dearth of, you know, as we think of electricians, we're left wanting right now. We need more in every part of sort of the energy, you know, sort of spectrum, you know, in generation, you know, and think about offshore wind and others. We need electricians. We need them in solar. We need them in geothermal. We need them wherever. So on the generation side, we need electricians. On the mobility side, think about all the EV charging stations. And, you know, like I said, we work with, I was out in LA for a culture and climate event a couple months ago with my good friends, Camille and Yvette, Yvette Ellis, Camille Cherry. You know, they've got a company charger help that helps to train electricians to maintain those. So their jobs there are jobs that can be created doing that kind of work. But also, as you talk about the home space, because, you know, as you look at it, probably the biggest chunk is through our, you know, built environment. And so we need folks to be going and doing the work of, you know, switching to air source heat pumps or, you know, this is the work that uh, Donnell Baird and, you know, um, Keith Kinch, you know, are doing at Block Power. Really exciting stuff, but there, we need more workers. And I think Donnell talks about, he wants to, I can't remember the number. I think he wanted to train like a thousand George Floyds. So this is real work in communities, in neighborhoods. That's, you know, I, if you think from a VC, like financing perspective, yeah, if you can just build an app and do some things, that's great. Or some type of SaaS platform. But there are a lot of jobs in this space that, well, a lot of work to do in this space that need real bodies and they create, you know, jobs. And when you're doing this workforce development, given that the people that you're describing, it, it sounds like, you know, sea level rise and existential threat and stuff isn't going to be as motivating as save 50 bucks a month on your electricity bill or, or things like that. Do you even need to get them to care 
about climate or do you just need to show them a better job and more opportunities than they have today that happen to be green? I think it'd be great to do both, but I... And now that you ask, I don't know if I need to get them to care about climate. I need to. And, and by the way, it's not just the people you're talking about like this. I mean, billionaires is probably the same thing. Like if you can show them a way that it serves their self-interest, like, you know, that happens to be cleaner. Is it going to be more motivating to them than, than showering them with guilt and shame? Yeah. Going back to our mission statement, you know, our threefold mission statement, we want to create jobs, build wealth, reduce energy burden. Although we're an environmental or EJ energy organization, none of those really talk about, you know, climate change, even though that's where we're trying to tackle. You know, as, as I tell people, part of the reason we're doing this work is, you know, I sort of say notwithstanding the pandemic, the wars that are raging, the attacks on our, you know, democracy, the police brutality and murders before all of that stuff hit us like all sort of together over the last couple of years, you know, the two biggest issues that we were facing are the racial wealth gap and climate change. And so that's what we're trying to tackle with the work that we're doing is that that space. And like I said, this tsunami is upon us, this work and all of the things are coming, but you know, I'll give you an example. There's a, the justice 40 initiative, says that 40% of the funding, so let's say Biden, Build Back Better or the Biden, you know, infrastructure or, you know, some of those funds is supposed to go to our most vulnerable communities. What does that look like? <laughs> How are we sure? Who is checking that? How is the money really getting to the people who need it the most? Or are we about to miss out again for whatever reason? For, you know, red tape, bureaucracy, whatever. We're trying to get ahead of that. And I would say, in a sense, we're a little bit behind, but, you know, this goes back to that adage, you know, what's the, you know, best time to plant a tree, you know, it was probably a hundred years ago. The second best time is now. So we're trying to, you know, think about the urgency of now and, you know, sort of have all hands on deck, you know, working on this work. And the last thing I'll say, sort of getting to your question of do people need to understand climate change and understand those pieces I think there is more of an awareness. You know, I've been doing environmental engineering and environmental justice for a very long time. But I think there are a lot of people where this is this is new. Like they're just sort of hearing about environmental justice, especially even people in the in communities of color, because to your point, Jason, it has felt like it's a luxury to think about those things. To think about and also I think the narrative has been the wrong narrative. The narrative has been around the polar ice caps and around polar bears and whales and animals and fishes and, you know, things like that, where I think the story is more about one of, is one of like public health and economic development and those pieces. I, I actually heard, well, I guess Vice President Kamala Harris now, but I think she was campaigning here when she was campaigning for senator. And she told a really good story about this space coming from her, you know, position in California. Like, I think when she was here, California was burning. So she talked about, you know, I, we got forest fires, we've got droughts, we're missing water. But we also, she talked about asthma and talked about asthma, you know, and this like a young black girl who's in the emergency room can't breathe because, you know, thinking about particulate matter and all those different things. And so that's, 
I do think people need to understand that while we're focusing at Brown New Green Space on the environmental goods, so the jobs and all that piece, we also definitely support people doing that work around the environmental bats and still pushing back on that. And so this would be the the Chelsea Green Roots, the alternatives for community environment, the neighbors to neighbors, the you know, maybe a groundwork Lawrence or you know, and I'm talking about organizations in this area. There are other organizations all across the country, you know, we act for environmental justice up in New York or Partnership for Southern Equity down in Atlanta. There are groups that are doing this type of work and it's so important that we continue to uplift them and support them. But I think that there's a piece of supporting them by, I think people can be more poised to advocate and lobby for those types of changes when they've got jobs, (laughs) when they have security, when they have, you know, a roof over their heads. And I think the environmental goods can help us with, with that. And so I think that's super important. And the last thing I'll, I'll say maybe tying to this is I come from being a, I hate to say sort of victim, but I grew up in an environmental justice community. I'm from Alabama originally. So I grew up in a fence line community. Like I literally, I tell people the fence was 10 feet outside my bedroom window. And it was separating us from a Monsanto plant. And for me, you know, I grew up and my my mom and dad, you know, both college educated. We were probably upper middle class for where I grew up, but my dad didn't leave his neighborhood. And so we lived in a poor black community and I thought it was natural for it to smell like rotten eggs every couple of weeks, you know, when the plant was cooking. And then, you know, when I was off at grad school in Michigan, or actually before then, but it came up, they cut through the toe of a landfill. And, you know, that landfill had polychlorinated biphenyls or PCBs in it. And that those PCBs leaked into the creek. Is that the same stuff that was in Woburn, the W.R. Grace facility? Yeah, so W.R. Grace, you know, PCBs. Actually, that's interesting. As you bring that up, the professor that was in there was uh, Professor Harold Heman at the end. So I knew Professor Heman when I worked worked there, uh, when I worked there, when I was a student as an undergrad. And Jan, what is it, Matslinger? I think Jan was the attorney. I've, I've been on panels with him when I worked for the state. But my aquatic chemistry lab was in Woburn. That uh, Aboriginal watershed, uh, that uh, program. So we took samples. And so to see water that's orange and smells like toluene is crazy. And that was like years after the effect. And so we want to remove that type of work. Well, not remove that type of work. We want to champion continuing to do that type of work because that, that changes lives. That changes communities. I was just home for Father's Day. And that neighborhood, it was good to see people I hadn't seen because those people have been scattered because it's pretty much a cleanup site. You know, that, you know, Johnny Cochran's last class action lawsuit post OJ was in my community. It was around that class action lawsuit of around, you know, getting money for folk who were impacted by that contamination that, you know, they tried to cover up. You know, there's a 60 minute special. That's how, how connected to this stuff. You know, I am. And, you know, I think when I was a suit, you know, working for the state, a lot of the communities that I was working with didn't know that I came from some of the same things that they were doing. So, you know, I think 
having empathy for people is so important in anything that you do. And so I, I think I bring that to the table from an environmental justice perspective and just knowing Dr. Robert Bullard and others, you know, when I got to MIT, you know, I read Dumping and Dixie for the first time. And so that's when I, like 1990, 1991, was first, you know, made aware of environmental justice and, you know, read about people sending their waste to my state. And I'm going, what is going on? But, you know, I think we're trying to make that more apparent now. And a lot of things have gotten a lot better. You know, if we think of the EPA, you know, it's just started in the 70s. So it's, it's, it's not that much older than me, if, that, if at all. Well, gosh, there's so many different ways the discussion could go from there. But as you're talking, even with cleaner solutions when it comes to energy sources and things like that, there's unintended consequences. The plants need to go somewhere. They might utilize a lot of water or energy to produce. They might have waste that's produced. You know, if it's a, if it's an EV, it's like, well, where do the, you know, the precious metals for the mining and mining labor practices? And it's like everything is so, interconnected. And I'm curious for the, you know, there's, it's very clear to me that the just transition is important because it's the right thing to do and not having a just transition is the wrong thing to do. There are people that would say, well, yes, it's important. I'm not, I mean, there's people that would say it isn't important, but those are not my people. So like, I'll leave that perspective out of it. But there's people that say, no, actually, it is important, but we've got to decouple it because we have a carbon problem and there's a blanket of heat and we're pumping emissions into the atmosphere and we have to get that under control. We're all screwed, like, you know, the wealthy, the poor and everybody in between. So let's not get distracted from the mission at hand, which is carbon, carbon, carbon. What would you say to those people? Those things are not disjointed. You can do both of those things at the same time, and you need to do both of those things at the same time. It is imperative. I'm going to preach the gospel of, you know, climate justice, which for us starts with diversity. We have an office down at CIC Boston in downtown, but we also have office space at Greentown Labs. Both of those spaces, and definitely in this green space, you know, Greentown Labs, you know, we want to think about how do we green that space. You know, we're literally and figuratively brown in the green space when we're in there. We want to have more people of color traversing through that space and working in that building and launching companies and growing things because that's so important. And as you think about it, and this is what's crazy, big three strategy consulting firms like McKinsey and and the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, you can read the reports that say, Diverse teams are better teams. <laughs> they just are. Teams with women outperform teams that are like all men. Teams with people of color out. Like you you keep adding that and it's just better. But I think we've got to get people. And the thing that I think about this is we can't have people sitting on the outskirts or sitting on the bench disengaged. This fight is so big that we've got to have everybody engaged. And so, yeah, if you want to decarbonize, 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 do it, but do it with women and people of color, because you guess what? You're going to do it faster and you're going to do it better. And so we can't have blinders on and just go, oh, this is how we, we do it. We're missing out and we're not getting there. And a lot of times those unintended consequences come because you don't have the right people at the table. So the first, and that goes back to that diversity piece, you can't have a, you know, 
you know, a lot of teams, and I get it, a team of three white guys out of Harvard or MIT or Babson or BU or somewhere, great as you start. But as you build, you got to bring more people onto your team. You got to make that diverse. That's going to make you better. Even if you couldn't care less about any of this stuff that we're talking about from a green perspective, you should be caring about the green of money and the bottom line for your shareholders and investors. And they need to do that. And I think that's the stuff that Ceres and others are trying to let people know is that, hey, looking at 10Ks and all these things and going, hey, these companies outperform the others. And so there's almost a fiduciary responsibility or an obligation for you to think about diversity and not just diversity, inclusion. So once you get people in, you don't just bring them in just to check a box. Do you have them engaged in doing projects? And then it's equity where now they're at the, at the table, they're leading the conversations, they're driving things. And that's when we've got justice. That's when we truly have fairness and we're making a difference. So I see that as sort of a false choice in a sense. We got to be doing all of it. And we started the discussion by talking about the two sides of the equation, how in some of these lower income communities, they bear the outsized brunt of the harm on the environmental side, and then they don't capitalize as, as much on the the upside as we make the transition and more resources come into the space. Looking at each of those separately and, and distinctly, maybe talk a bit about some of the biggest barriers to alleviating those issues, both on the less harm to the communities that maybe aren't as well-equipped to fight it, and then more benefit to those communities. Like, what are the blockers and what could we change to accelerate progress if you could only change one thing? Yeah, so I think on the environmental bats side, and I, I, that's like, how can we have less harm? One, the good thing is a, a lot of things have come into place that are, you know, helping to do that. If we think about the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, a, a number of different regs and things that are in place. But one thing is a lot of them have been over the last 10 years under assault. And so we, we need to make sure that, you know, those things are upheld and we're pushing to make sure those take place. I think the other piece, though, you know, once again, and I think, like I said, is, you know, there needs to be an awareness and there needs to be opportunity for folk to to speak up in their communities about these things and i think it is just i think it's tough to do it when you're worried about all these other things and so that's why i think our focus is like i said i think is really important to continue to have people doing the fight you know against those environmental bats but me it feels like and it almost feels like that stuff has been there and it's sort of we're working on on lessening it but, you know, it's sort of been there for me, the new thing and the new frontier and the one that can do a whole bunch of other things is working on those environmental goods. Let's get people into these green jobs that are both blue collar and white collar jobs that are, you know, the folk from the union trades. We, we just received some funding from the Mass Clean Energy Center, along with our partner, the Exodus Group out of Aberdeen, Scotland. And this is specifically in the sort of offshore wind space, but to look not just, you know, we, we're you know, working with folk like Benjamin Franklin Institute of Technology and, you know, Roxbury Community College and thinking about two-year universities and and community colleges and certification programs. But thinking about how do we 
also not just do internships and apprenticeships, but how do we think about post-bac programs? So we're looking at an ex-academy that takes people out of four-year institutions and sort of gives them additional training, almost like a rotation program. So we can put them in the jobs at Mayflower and Commonwealth and, you know, Vineyard Wind and Orsted and all of these places because they're going to be all these jobs coming. I want to see some black and brown people and more women in those roles. And so I think, Jason, when people have jobs and the livelihoods, and I think I said this earlier, that now they've got opportunities to, you know what, they've got some disposable cash flow. They can go make a donation to that community group. Or guess what? Maybe they've got a salary position now, or they've got a better schedule. So you know what? They can go and be involved a little bit more in their communities. Man, if you're living check to check and you're working two jobs or three jobs, it does feel like a luxury to talk about trees. You know, when, you know, maybe when you've also just, you've grown accustomed to it. Like I said, I thought it was supposed to smell like rotten eggs. I didn't think, and I, I never remember in my 18 years before I came to MIT, anybody going, we should go tell them to stop. There were plenty of really smart folk. I think they just were like, this is how it is. And so I think there is an awareness and an education to say, no, this is not how it's supposed to be. You're getting the short end of the stick. And I know we're, we're coming up on time here, but one important thing that we, we haven't yet addressed is I know you spent some time in, in government and we haven't talked much about government. So when you think about government, and that could be state, that could be federal, that could be both... Are you getting what you need from government today? And, and what do you wish from government looking forward? And I mean, it's especially timely to ask this just given how effed up our government is right now. Yeah, unfortunately, I think it's, and I don't know who said it, but I think we, we you know, unfortunately get the government you deserve. And I think a lot of people have, have checked out. And going back to that sort of system dynamics sort of problem, we're, we're in a sort of, a, we've been in a state where we're in a sort of, positive feedback loop with negative repercussions and so people checking out and then when you know when people check out then you know they're not pushing on government and so government's not getting better and then it gets worse and more people check out and it's done there i actually think you know and unfortunately this is how we do it's almost like a metronome or something we swing far one way and then we come back i think because of all of the mess that has gone on over the last three or four years that people are becoming more engaged. And I think really the younger generation, I think they're really actively engaged. I think they're super interested in this work. I was actually at a, um, an event, Golden Door Awards. I can't remember the, so the immigration organization. They just, they just honored St- Stefan Bonsall from Madonna and he gave a great, speech and it was amazing to hear all the things that they're doing and we we all owe them a debt of gratitude for what they've done in helping us to you know really ramp up and get people vaccinated you know along with the people at Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson and others but you know he talked about his daughter and I I want to say her name is Olivia that's what's popping in my head and I don't know how many kids he has but he's well, you're, like, you're brave to put that out so confidently yeah yeah no I'm I'm, I'm going to go I'm going to go with that but but talked about how She's pushing him on climate like she's doing it. And so he's starting to think more about it because of them. So I've got so much faith in our our young people 
and it's sort of unfair, you know, but like, you know, life's not fair. That's what I tell my girls. It's not fair. You got to suck it up and deal with it. Like they didn't put us in this situation that we're in, but they're going to have to be a really big part of the solution of getting us out of it. And that's why, you know, as we think of workforce development, you know, a lot of what we've been focused on is, you know, sort of high school and post-secondary, that piece. But we're starting to think and, and you know, returning citizens and, and th- those groups and also thinking about people switching from the oil and gas industry, you know, sort of transitioning. But we're more and more starting to think of K through six, K through eight education and like how do we make sure we're promoting this this work to those folk because hey they're going to be the people who are really going to you know keep this going as we you know jump in right now to try to you know stop the bleeding and Carrie for anyone listening who's inspired by your work how can we be helpful to you who do you want to hear from if anybody I think there is a lot of different folk you know I, I think that there are opportunities I don't know everybody you've spoken to in this area. Maybe I'll give you a few people to speak about in this area if you can get them on. But in general, for us, we're fundraising because we want to grow the work we're doing at Brown and the Green Space. And especially we've got a lot of programmatic dollars coming in, but you know, we want to build our capacity. We've got a small team of, you know, three deputy directors, some interns and me part time. I think there's so much work for us to do. And so we love if you're interested, you know, we're www.browningthegreenspace.org. Uh, you can send an email to info at browningthegreenspace.org or even to me, carry at browningthegreenspace.org. And we'd love to hear from you and we can get you involved in the, the work that we're doing in any of those areas. If it's around workforce development, if it's around business development, venture capital, you know, funding, different financing mechanisms, and also on the community side, you know, doing more outreach, doing more pilots, thinking about R&D and sort of knowledge-based management in our communities, because the, the, the people in the community are the experts. You don't have to go bring in some fancy hydrologist from MIT to know where it floods. You You go talk to Mr. Jefferson on the corner, who's been there for 50 years, he knows where it floods. Like you can save a lot of time just talking to to people about things. We got to do more of that. We've got to be more relational and not transactional. We've got to build those relationships through more communication, more being on the ground, more building trust and, you know, communicating and really just getting out there, especially as things start to open up, knock on wood with the pandemic, where we can actually get out and maybe we don't press palms, maybe we do fist bumps, but, you know, going and understanding what are their really needs that people have and telling them a little bit more about the, the opportunities, especially in this green space. And Carrie, anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words? Not that I can think of. I'm sure I've got, there's plenty more I can talk about, but I think, you know, just to reiterate, we need everybody in this climate fight. It is a climate fight and to really win and to, and as quickly as we can, let's not leave any people on the, on the edges. Great. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for making the time to come on and educate me and educate listeners. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.com. 
.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.